0: This is Swampside Chats. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Donald.
1: Hey, it's Donald, also from Communist League of Tampa.
0: Grant. Hey, this is Grant. I'm in Red Party as well. Lexi. Lexi, injuring everybody at once. And here tonight to talk to us about the IWW is uh, Nick.
2: Hey, what's up? Nick from Tampa IWW.
0: All right, um, so this will be the second volume of our ongoing series, The Joy of Sect. Uh, So tonight we're gonna talk about uh, the Industrial Workers of the World, something which, full disclosure, I am a member of. Um, They also have their annual uh, conference coming up pretty soon, uh, which should determine some things about the future of the organization. So I thought it would be interesting to uh, sort of dive into what it is and where it's banned and where it's going. Um, and so the first question that I'll direct to you, Nick, um, what is the IWW, for anyone who doesn't know, who's listening to this, and uh, when did you first get involved?
2: Yeah, uh, so the Industrial Workers of the World um, is a union, labor union founded in 1905. Um, it was founded by like a handful of proto, like syndicalist, like union leaders, um, socialists, uh, like Eugene V. Debs was involved with the founding. I think, pretty sure Mother Jones was like a delegate or something there. Um, Emma Goldman, Big Bill Haywood, who was a union leader of mine workers, uh, Western Federation of Miners was uh, a miners union, uh, obviously in the Western United States. Um, And their idea, as indicated by the name, was to advocate for industrial unionism. Um, And this idea is maybe best illustrated by Eugene Debs' experiences in the 1890s. He was involved in a series, well, one big railroad strike um, of Pullman train car manufacturer uh, in Chicago. So the experience he had had prior to that as a worker as a fireman on the railroads was that all of the different types of labor done on the railroads was done by what were organized into different craft unions. So if you did one particular skilled task involved in, you know, uh, making the trains run, you'd be in a different union. So there's like 16 brotherhoods or something like that, uh, different unions that tried to figure out ways to work together on the railroads to organize the workers who worked on rail. Um, And it was a, Eugene Debs had been involved in that for about 15 years before he became repeatedly uh, fed up with it and the limitations implied by it. Basically, a lot of times unions would strike against each other or one would go on strike and uh, others wouldn't. So they would scab on each other rather. So in the 1890s, he tried to organize um, the American Railway Union, which was supposed to be one union of all workers who worked in rail. And they ended up going on strike in chicago um and it basically got busted by the federal government and he was put in prison he gets converted to socialism and about 10 years 11 years later he's helping found the industrial Workers of the world in addition to being like a founding member of the socialist party um the idea was to establish sort of officially in practice what they kind of tested with the aru which is that you should have an industrial union that organizes workers on the basis of industry rather than craft. Um, I got involved in the union... Uh, man, I guess it's six years ago. Um, I went to an organizer training that they had in Gainesville, um, just sort of on a whim. I'd, heard, I'd read about them in history classes and stuff, and had become like interested in socialism and anarchism, and they were, of course, an explicitly socialist and class struggle-based union, in addition to being advocating industrial unionism and so that attracted to me attracted me as it has attracted a lot of like young american socialists for ever since its founding you know even when it's like today it's ne- definitely not at its peak by any means it's probably at its mid-year i guess that would technically be in the uh 60s but that, that's when its lowest membership was um but yeah so i got interested in it and i went to an organizer training and i could talk more about what an organizer training is if you want but i hope that's something in the background
0: um. So, yeah, because I know, like, the first place that I kind of heard about the idea of BW was uh, from Howard Zinn, who sort of paints this very, like, hero- I think if I remember correctly, paints, like, this very heroic portrait of them, uh, th- peppered throughout uh, a people's history. And so I think that, on some level, I feel like that probably has helped to sort of create the kind of image that a lot of people have of them uh, on the left, broadly. Um, and that, I, would, I would bet that's probably the first place a lot of people hear about them.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah like um and even in my high school history courses where you learn about the iww they're always portrayed as like the most radical union that existed in the united states right now like you learn about all the like the afl-cio and, like then there was you know the really radical workers the iww and they wanted to basically take over all of the factories for their unions and stuff mm-hmm. and so there's that legacy is definitely there but right
2: there's There's a real um, syndicalist strain in it, kind of as I said before. So the big founding union that kind of uh, brought a lot of members into the IWW from the beginning was the Western Federation of Miners. And out West mining, I mean, they called them the mine workers like wars, right? Like they would, the company would have the local government in its pocket so much that workers would just have to defend themselves by any means necessary. Whenever they would decide to go out on strike, they would be kicked out of their homes because the company owned them, you know? Uh, It would be, so there were really brutal situations like that. And Bill Haywood and I don't forget their names. I think uh, Vincent St. John were involved, were two like union organizers and miners who were involved in this union became officers of it and had this kind of like firsthand experience of the brutality of capitalism, especially in these extractive industries out West in the United States. And so they had this kind of, I mean, one, authors have called it like viral syndicalism as a term for it, but there's definitely like there's an element of like rugged do-it-yourself kind of like we'll take care of the problems on the job uh, however we we manage to see fit. So there's an element of like self-government there. There's an element of uh, obviously class struggle in like a rough-and-tumble way or whatever. Um, It's funny too because culturally the IWW retains some of that that sensibility. So in like the – 40s and 50s you know these people were old who were in the 19 teens involved in a lot of these organizing drives and stuff and these experiences and so you'd see kind of like pop culture or whatever writers in like manly man magazines i don't know like maybe there's like a blurb or two or an essay that mentions the wobblies in this kind of light, you know this sort of out west rough and tumble the world was not yet tamed sort of thing but back when men were men Exactly. There's definitely a huge masculinity element there. Um, Yeah. But, but at the same time, they were, uh, and they're often portrayed in the history books and this is, you know, largely accurate. They were one of the first unions to organize um, integrated unions among black and white workers or among like Southern European workers or a lot of workers that weren't considered, you know, white or might be thought of antagonistically between natives and uh, newly immigrated workers. Um, They would organize women alongside men. So, I mean, they had good fundamental principles, good is one way to put it, but fundamental like socialist principles in that regard. Um, Their whole sort of outlook was workers have to be practically united on the job across craft or skill or whatever to effectively combat the employer, which was at the time it it was fundamentally true and it was an effective... Um, Set of principles. It led to some real results in a lot of
1: places. Yeah, I was gonna say like another kind of aspect of the IWW's ideology was this sort of hostility towards electoral politics. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe a lot of this was very historically specific, kind of because you had a lot of sections of the U.S. working class that were kind of that were denied access to the ballot. Like women weren't given access to the ballot until 1919. Right, immigrants and you know immigrants obviously often didn't have access to the ballot you had suffrage restricted for blacks and so you know for a lot of people who kind of didn't see any solution at all through voting like IWW kind of like it's anti-politicism kind of seemed natural that we should just organize unions and organize through unions rather than parties one of
2: a, a, just a fascinating or I think a kind of interesting component of that is that Bill Haywood and uh, Vincent St. John, and others who actually came out of the Western Federation were members of the Socialist Party alongside Debs until 1913, I think. And they were supportive of, and this was the Industrial Workers of the World. I think it was in their preamble. It, it, now it says the emancipation of the workers, um, I see, I can't remember it. They must like, workers must work together to free themselves from like economic bondage or something like that. But before it said political and economic, right? Um, So the idea was like, we need the Socialist Party and we need the Industrial Workers of the World. But the problem was, the right wing of the Socialist Party did not want to commit to the IWW.
1: Yeah, that's what it seemed like was the Socialist Party's left wing really liked the IWW, wanted to work together with them. Right. The right wing thought that they were too, that mass strikes were too risky, and that they were, you know, they, they didn't like how much they broke the law, for example.
2: Yeah, and it kind of went back and forth for several years, and it came to a head where the Socialist Party was like, we're not going to endorse the IWW. They, like, sabotage and all this stuff. And so Haywood was like, fuck it. We're just going to do our thing. Then there's that's an interesting question there, too. But But
1: the thing is, they ended up trying to unite with the Communist Party, which was, you know, very militant in the early days of the U.S. and had this kind of, you know, fight for full communism, now immediately platform, actually. Right, there was a... but, of course, that's got that screwed up through the whole commentary and arguments. Right, right.
0: Well, I know, like, you know, the IWW, um, you know, wasn't, like, immune to splits. And there were, like, a number of, like, early, like, debates. Like, I, I know at one point there were, like, two IWWs.
2: Yeah. And then
0: there was, like, this, like, centralization versus decentralization debate. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so the first um... – The first split is, I mean, I guess there's a couple different sort of like organizational morphs that happen. The Western Federation of Miners leaves, I think in 1907, which is two two years after the founding, maybe 1908. What happens is right after the union gets founded, uh, Haywood and a lot of the leaders who came out of the Western Federation get basically kidnapped um, and taken out of one state. I think they get taken out of Colorado and into Idaho or something like that, um, or somewhere. in the middle of the night, and to get tried for the attempted murder of the governor of Idaho, or Utah, I think it's Idaho, yeah. Um, and the, there's basically this this attempt to frame them for trying to bomb this former governor of the state, um, and that kind of has a good effect from the perspective of capitalists in the state, which is that the Western Federation of Miners, which was their biggest, you know, founding union, decided, well, we don't want to be a part of like this, right? A more conservative leader gets, I think it's Moyer, Charles Moyer takes leadership of the Western Federation of Miners and kind of directs them to sort of like not affiliate with the IWW as much. Um, So that could be conceived as as, as partially kind of like one of the early splits. But then there's the the big one that sticks out that you mentioned is um, Daniel De Leon, who was a member, one of the founding members, um, also of the Socialist Labor Party. And they split... I can't remember the year, but he basically set up a competing IWW in Detroit, I think. And uh, it basically folded because everyone, like DeLeon was almost universally recognized to be like like hyper sectarian. There have been points where devs had tried to work with him and stuff and it just didn't work out for whatever reason. And that's sort of like the general impression. I don't know a lot of the details in that regard. Um, Yeah. I don't know if Donald, if you have any more knowledge about DeLeon, you might've read some stuff.
1: Yeah, I actually know a little bit about the Socialist Labor Party and De Leon. Okay. And um, De Leon was very rigid. Like, you know, people call Kotsky like rigid Marxism or vulgar Marxism. But De Leon like definitely is like kind of a vulgar Marxist perspective. Well, and he, that he, he did, very he, much just like had no real like ability to work with other socialists who weren't like completely on board with his viewpoint in a way.
0: Well, like he he didn't he didn't believe that like fighting for higher wages was, was necessarily a worthwhile thing to do because prices would go up, which I
1: don't know how good a Marxism that is. Yeah, especially. exactly. He kind uh, of um had some strange positions. He kind of completely ignored race issues, for example. Yeah.
0: So, like, what was what was the character of was when like um the IWW split and there was like a Detroit IWW and then I think the other one was based out of was it
1: based out of Chicago.
2: Yeah. That was the main one that continued that went on to do all of like the things the IWW became known
1: for. Yeah, like basically De Leon wanted his own union attached to his the Socialist Labor Party. Uh, He thought that the the union and the party should basically be kind of you know part of the same organization, but somewhat independent. But basically, the party, the unions were subsidiaries of the party, kind of. And the IWW didn't want that, and so. Cause they wanted independence from political parties. And so that's kind of where a lot of the anti-political sentiment in the IWW comes from. It's just like, you know, we don't need no stinking party, you know, cause Daniel De Leon tried that shit back in, you know, 1905 and and it was a disaster. So like, there's a lot of hostility back still remains within the IWW because of that. Was there
0: beyond De Leon, was there like a greater character to this split? Like, was it like, was there like what was like the political makeup of like the Chicago versus the Detroit? Was it literally just like the Daily Honest faction? Was the Detroit people and the Chicago? Was everybody else or like? And what role did like the centralization versus decentralization debate? Yes.
2: Yeah. So the there, so, yeah there had to be separate thing. I think the Daily Honest stuff, as I understand it, was pretty much Daily Honest faction. But there was a there's a repeated trend. Okay. So there's this. In addition to the Western Federation of Miners, the IWW starts to sign up and get involved with organizing migratory workers out West. And these are people that, in addition to some, of, a lot of them being African-American or a lot of them being immigrants, if, even if they're not, if they're eligible to vote, they never live in one place long enough to meet the state requirements to register to vote. So they're, very, or they're already anti-political in that regard. They just have no interest in voting. So the political stuff doesn't appeal to them at all. And then there's a secondary element, which is that because they have to do these migratory jobs, they're just not really—they're not super well regulated. Any sort of organizing they do is extremely direct action based. Um, and so there is this uh, basically a constituency within the IWW out West that comes to represent. And I think later also in the 20s represents the sort of decentralized faction that's sort of like anarchist and um, anti-political. Then there's people I think like Big Bill Haywood who are more sympathetic to socialist politics and to that the idea that there does need to be some settling of the political question on the political plane and you can't solve all things through you know just the IWW alone um, and that that kind of recurs throughout the organization's life the Chicago like IWW like I said it kind of remains uh, grows as an organization in the 19 teens. Um, organizing lumber workers out west helping organize timber workers in the south u.s south um, helping organize uh, longshoremen on the east coast in philadelphia um, the lawrence textile strike a lot of classic sort of events does that so, answer your question a little bit
0: yeah um so i know like one big thing that the iww is famous for in this period was their resistance to like the first world war which led to like this wave of uh repression as a result of that Could you talk a little bit about that or
2: yeah so uh around 19 around the us's uh entrance into world war one I guess 1914 i think in 1914 they're worried about the interest i guess they don't enter until 1915 but um the IWW doesn't take a formal anti-war stance. I think they pass one resolution saying they don't support the war, but they don't take like the most aggressive anti-war stance. But it isn't the case that they do what the AFL did, which is like go all in for the war and uh do almost the equivalent of what what happened in World War II where most of the unions signed uh, basically, a big promise not to strike throughout the war. The IWW contin- continued to strike and organize workers throughout America's prosecution of World War One, which landed them in hot water. Some of their organizers, right, and uh, Eugene Debs is no longer formally affiliated with the IWW, but everyone knows the left wing of the Socialist Party is sympathetic to the IWW, and they still work together often on strikes, right? Um gets arrested for speaking out against the war. And again, the IWW is not at all opposed to organizing workers throughout the process of the war. So this gets them in trouble. I think Frank little, I think it was the anniversary of his birth a couple of days ago, but he was like a staunchly anti-war wobbly. And he ended up getting killed uh, for going into a town, going into Butte, Montana, trying to organize workers there. Um, and he gets murdered at night. So, there's like some element there, right? There's a little bit of division within the union there, but at least they continue to say, you know, there's high demand for labor right now. And, you know, this isn't our war workers shouldn't be fighting this war. We have no stake in, you know, not striking. This is the best opportunity for us. There's such high demand for labor. We can just, you know, fold our arms and get all of the demands we want we, we met. Um, and eventually this leads yeah, to their repression uh, in 1917. There's the FBI orchestrates a series of raids on uh, the headquarters and all of the offices across the country. I think it's one of the, uh, if it's not the, I think it was the largest mass trial in U.S. history up to that point. Um, the they break the Philadelphia Longshoremen's Union, which, um, you know, so all of this is unfolding at the end, like 1917, the end of World War One. And of course you can imagine amongst the socialist union and amongst socialist parties, there's all of these conversations about the Bolshevik revolution going on. And in 1918, 1919, there's allegations that like uh, longshoremen in Philadelphia are shipping arms that are headed for Rankle's army. So they have to like, they need to be striking and refusing to load those goods. And there's debates in the IWW about it. And the Common Turn, like pro people are alleging that the people who are skeptical of the Common Turn are trying to send these arms to rank, like there's all this sort of like debate that starts going on. In addition to mass repression, in addition to the fact that the leaders of the local unions in Philadelphia are all sitting in jail, you know, and stuff like that. So it kind of works to break the union to a, a certain degree.
0: Yeah. So like the fallout from that, like it seemed to have, because like what were, because you talked about, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier here and there, what different, like areas of organization like the IWW had, but I guess like in this early period, was there, were there certain like types of industry that they like gravitated to, or was there some places where they had, I guess more influence or more weight than others, or was it really just kind of like a, like a scattered about like IWW, like an IU here and IU there. Like, can you talk a little bit about like the way that they were organizing industry at the time?
2: Yeah. Um, So it was scattered about, like I said. So there were some that like organizers, uh, leaders of other unions that had come in who had more experience in particular industries might organize there. Oftentimes you would have, I think the longshoremen provide like a classic example because in Philadelphia, they got organized to the point where, uh, they controlled the waterfront. They controlled access to jobs on the waterfront. Um, so if you wanted to be, if you wanted to work in Longshoring in Philly, you had to have an IWW pin. They didn't have any, I don't think they had any formal contracts with the employers. They might've signed this stuff down on like one or two pages. That was an understanding, but the union like controlled hiring and everything. Um, so, and it was for a period of maybe eight, maybe six to eight years that they did this. Um, it was an integrated union. Uh, I think there was probably about 3,500 workers if I remember correctly roughly in that local and half or so were black and then uh, the other were white and you know European immigrants. Um, so that's one example and that might be the most uh, the best example of maybe a more conservative union in the IWW or one that was more stable. In a lot of other cases, you had essentially heroic attempts to organize that often got basically smashed, or strikes that were won, but a lasting organization didn't really come out of them.
0: Um, can, you so, talk about, like, can you talk about like any examples, like uh, in particular, or, yeah. or like, a, like a representative example of that? Or
2: yeah, so so there's a the classic Lawrence textile strike, which unites a, a bunch of different, uh, a bunch of em- immigrants from a bunch of different countries um, and Lawrence, and they struggle for demands. They talk about, uh, the classic slogan, bread and roses comes out of this. They're fighting for textile workers in Lawrence. Um, and I believe they get a great deal of their demands, but they don't set up any like long lasting institution there. I think a year later, there's an attempt to organize in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, silk workers that fails miserably. They don't set up any long lasting institutions there. One of the reasons it might be the case is that there's a large array of, uh, like I said, different immigrants speaking different languages that have kind of their own tend to have like their own political and ethnic enclaves. And there was some tension in the IWW at the time of, should we organize them into like one formal organization or should we have what we're often called like language branches where like you would have an industrial worker newspaper in each language you would have they would all kind of meet like almost in this balkanized way if that makes sense and have their own little like branches their own separate ways of like communicating and cohering around that identity around their languages and everything like that Um, in general so the picture you get is that there are workers somewhere that are fed up and they're having this problem and the IWW is like, well, we'll send out an organizer, we'll send someone there who can help like lead this strike. But there's not like this deep roots building like of community among these people and forming something like a formal institution. So contrast that with Philly, where you had a longshore worker, Ben Fletcher, who was African-American, who had worked longshore jobs on the East coast for much of his life. And then kind of like was known amongst the longshoremen and then be like, was a socialist and kind of reached out and contacted. This is how I understand it. At least the IWW and started working with them. So here you have someone plugged into the community a little bit more, um, who can help uh, form a stable and institutional community there. Plus I think it helped that they were able to get a degree of job control, that like workers in Lawrence textile, the Lawrence textile mills weren't able to get, if that makes sense, because they were able to kind of sign up workers along uh, the docks in general and then control employment in that way.
0: So, like, what period would you say was probably like, like the high point, like the of, like the IWW as an organization.
2: Uh, so yeah, I think it's interesting. After the 20s, people don't talk about them. Like, so there's this book by Mel Dubovsky. It's like the classic history. And it kind of, after the 20s, it tapers off. It was published in the 1960s, 68 or something, I think, originally. Um, The teens are like the heyday. The teens are the time when they're organizing timber workers out west. They have, like, people riding the rails. They have, like, you know, they're organizing migratory workers. Uh, The textile strike is in 1912. The Lawrence textile strike. The Patterson silk strike is in 13, I think. The... Uh, Longshoremen become organized in 1911 or 1912. So I think the teens are kind of like the heyday um, that everyone wants to point to. But interestingly enough, the Wobbies don't, you know, they they get raided in 1918, and their, their max, I think, members is actually in the 1920s, if I remember correctly. I don't remember the number, but I, th- I think they don't actually decline in size until after the 1920s. Um, And I think they try to regroup in the 1930s and focus on, I wanna say metal workers in like Cleveland and in the Midwest, and they have some luck there um, through the 30s and 40s, and then that kind of goes away.
0: And so like early on, they had like this relationship uh, with at least maybe the left wing of the Socialist Party, um, and for a period the Socialist Labor Party. What was their relationship to the Communist Party? Like how did that develop?
2: You know, I'm not super familiar. I think maybe Donald can chime in here. Some I know how some of it played out with Philadelphia. I know that. Um, so there was a, an initial outreach by the Comintern to affiliate with the IWW. Again, Donald can maybe correct me. Um, and then there was some division within the IWW about it because, you know, yeah, it's I actually
1: interesting, like how the relationship between IWW and Bolshevism, because. Initially the IWW kind of saw the idea of Soviet power as mirroring their own ideas about industrial unions taking over the country basically. And so a lot of the IWW people in the US were very influenced by the Bolshevik Revolution, inspired by it. Mm-hmm. And you know, so the earlier early on there was a lot of, you know, support for the Bolsheviks from the IWW and so in 1919 and around that, when the Comintern first was being formed, the IWW was asked to join the Comintern and the CNT, actually, another you know, anarcho-syndicalist in Spain, um, also affiliated with the Comintern for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And I think um, basically what happened was there was arguments within the Comintern about whether or not you, they should work with syndicalist unions or if they should try to just work within the more conservative unions and tried to gain influence within those and so basically um they came to a disagreement with the iww over political tactics and strategy and eventually the iww split completely from the common term, i think i think by like 1921 so there was like a period where the iww did try to be part of the common term. and um there's actually an interesting book by this guy alfred rosmer who is a french syndicalist and he was very supportive of kind of like a, a union between a syndicalist and the common turn. But um, he kind of describes the whole uh, process of how that kind of fell apart. And you blame I think he, he kind of blazes on Zinoviev, I think. And uh, or just, he has a book called Lenin's Moscow, which kind of tells the whole story of the how the common turn and the syndicalist uh, union kind of almost happened, but didn't. And <sighs>
0: There's, so many um, missed
1: opportunities with that international. Right? Yeah.
2: Did you mention the Seattle General Strike just now, Donald?
1: Um, well, yeah, there was a Seattle general strike, which um showed a lot of influence from the uh Bolshevik Revolution. Like there were communiques cool. that told workers to form so to do like the Russians and form Soviets or workers' councils to take over the city. Right. I remember
2: reading, like, and, and I know that iwws participated in that, as well as like other socialist members like the AFL in Seattle. And I remember reading something, I think from that time, it was like a handbill or seeing a video or something, but it was like like Russia has shown the way, like that's what a workers' government looks like. This is what we do. Yeah, have. yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, and it was really the idea of kind of Soviet power right? well with the IWW's idea of kind of syndicates or, you know, running the country basically. Right. Which, you know, I think is not exactly a perfect idea, but it does, you know, there was a resonance between Soviet power. And then I think, like you said, there was a lot of people in the IWW who saw the need for a political party. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they saw the Socialist Party was too right-wing. And so the idea of like a more radical political party, like the Communist Party, would have been very appealing to a lot of people in the IWW. Right.
0: Um. So I guess this kind of brings us up to World War II. Um, I know that there was nationally like a pretty major series of strike waves that went up through World War II and afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent was like the IWW involved in that? Were they sort of like, as you described earlier, kind of the sort of like frontline agitators trying to like push things further? Or did they have, did they have a presence in that? Um so to my knowledge, they did not
2: have a major presence in that. There might have been isolated, like wobblies, ex-wobblies, and stuff like that. Um, but my understanding is that wartime strikes during World War II were mostly by kind of uh, disorganized syndicalists who were maybe members of other unions or a lot of these more conservative unions that had been born in the 30s, um, and then different political groups that didn't adhere to sort of like the classic uh stalinist line about the war which after a certain point meant to just you know rah 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 behind the u.s government um so one of the unions that did and it's not the iww but there's the mechanics educational society of america um, which was a union and machinists and auto production i think tool and die workers too and um they the leader of that union was a machinist from the uk who was a syndicalist he was in the shop steward movement there in like the teens and 20s i think and uh came to the united states and helped organize in the 1930s a lot of auto uh workers and they refused to sign the no strike pledge. they kind of took the same line um as the wobblies did during world war one which was why the hell wouldn't we strike right now this isn't our war And they would actually, if you read their newspaper, they would cross-publish like cartoons from the IWW's paper at the time, and maybe sometimes a periodical. So I think the IWW, would still existed and it still agitated against the war, but it was no longer like a major force. I think in the 40s, they had basically a local or a couple of locals around Cleveland or in Ohio um, with metal workers, but... It, they were their membership was dwindling as I understand it interestingly enough the organizer of the Metalworkers workers won um there's two brothers I think F- Fred and Tor Cedarville and I've heard claims or I've read claims somewhere I wish I could find the source that uh Jimmy Hoffa actually got some of his like organizing chops from these guys in like the 30s or 20s or something like that because they would again the Wobblies at least for like I mean certainly in their heyday and even on, you know, these, was, these were trade organized or these were union organizers. Like, they knew what they were doing. They were, like, adept um, speakers. They would, they could, you know, hold an audience. They were, you know, good at reaching out to people. And they had the, the set of skills that you would need to do that. Um, I just thought, you know, that's kind of an interesting anecdote. But, yeah, by the World War II, they're kind of reaching there.
0: Yeah, so what, what was the Taft-Hartley Act, and what was its effect on the IWW? Um...
2: Taft-Hartley, well, so Taft-Hartley is passed in 1947. And it kind of like, it's sort of like, a, if the NLRA, if the National Labor Relations Act is a revolution, then Taft-Hartley is a bit of a counter revolution. Um, because the National Labor Relations Act says you can strike, you have the right to get together with your coworkers and grieve without being like retaliated against. So basically protects like union organization. Um, but then Taft-Hartley comes along and says, well, you, uh, and, and the NLRA also sets up a whole, like, court system for problems at work, basically, regarding unions and stuff like that. So to arbitrate disputes. And some of this gets worked out throughout World War II and, and more. Like, the machinery gets kind of fine-tuned. But um, Taft-Hartley gets passed, and it says that you can file ULPs against unions. So it used to be that you would file a ULP is an unfair labor practice. So say you're a worker, you have a union, you go to work and, or you have, you're a worker and you're trying to organize a union. You want to vote to have a union in your workplace. Um, and the boss, you know, pulls you aside and says, Hey, if you form this union or you vote yes on this union thing, I'm gonna, you know, cut wages for everybody by 10%. I mean, this is something like Nissan just did, but, uh, it's a threat right so that's illegal you're not they're not allowed to threaten people that was part of the nlra so you would file you would tell your union the union would go to the national labor relations board and be like look the boss is threatening like workers that's uh, that's an unfair labor practice and then they would investigate and all this stuff well so Taft Hartley says now you the bosses can file unfair labor practices against the union right so it's level the playing fields be true you know liberals and have equal application of the law right um another thing it does it is it Outlaw is the second-hand boycott, which, again, if I understand it correctly, uh, is where you refuse to handle scab goods, So if or struck goods. So if, like, your uh, Teamster, if you drive trucks and the workers who manufactured those goods are on strike, but they brought in scabs to push these goods out, you would be like, whoa, 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 I'm not moving these because this hasn't been produced with union labor like it's supposed to be. The workers who are supposed to have produced this are on strike. Which is a huge, I would, that was one of the founding ideas of the IWW is that not only should workers be organized in this, who are working in the same industry to organize together, but all of those different industrial unions should be united in one organization. Because that way if the shoe manufacturers or the milk producers or whatever go on strike, the truck drivers who distribute it, right, can go on strike with them in case, you know, the manufacturers bring in scabs. So Taft-Hartley, you know, kind of hymns that in a little bit. Um, I don't, to my knowledge, I don't. Again, I don't think it had any major effect on the IWW. I think it continued to decline. Um, I think that there was the Cleveland Workers uh, in Ohio. Um, I wish I knew more about them. That's probably a weak spot in my IWW history. But yeah, I know that eventually they either join. I think they join another union at a certain point.
0: Well, I think I think what happened was they uh, were afraid that they'd be. As a result of this, they'd be subject to ratings, so they split from the IWW, and then just kind of the union that they had separately basically fell apart.
2: Another part of it, too, yeah, that's, okay, that, that makes sense, because another thing that was going on at the time were non-communist affidavits, right? So there's this, uh, I can't remember if it's a provision of Taft-Harley, I know certainly in the NFL. It CIO, is.
0: Sorry, go ahead. It, it Yeah, it is a provision of taft hartley You had to basically okay. sign an affidavit saying that you didn't support the Communist Party and blah, blah, blah.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's part of Taft-Hartley, right. And as a result, yeah. And this was actually a tension, if I remember correctly, like in Cleveland, uh even early on, a lot of like the, there were members of the IWW who are like, you guys aren't pushing sort of like the political line of the IWW enough amongst these Cleveland workers, right? So there's this tension kind of in syndicalist politics in general. It's, it's in union politics too, right? Between like pure and simple trade unionism, or what's called economism, um, and then like revolutionary politics, and like as you put it, yeah, I think that ended up having something, some role to play, um, and it was definitely utilized by the bosses to sort of like split them off. Right, you got to sign this non-communist affidavit to say that you're not a member of any totalitarian, fascist, communist organization, and that's gonna people are gonna get spooked by that.
0: Yeah. So it's my understanding that after the loss of that, that's kind of, that was kind of the low point, basically the IWW where their membership was down to like the hundreds. Um, And then they ended up apparently getting involved in like the civil, like the, actually the free speech movement on Berkeley uh, and getting involved with SDS. Do you know a lot about that period or is that something you can talk about?
2: Um, yeah, just the same stuff you just said, that was sort of like their that was the beginning of their bounce back is in the 60s with a lot of sort of like the new left.
1: Um, Yeah, you had a lot of people in the the new left who kind of looked to the IWW and syndicalism and anarchism as and also Maoism, surprisingly, as kind of alternatives to um, the kind of gray authoritarian, you know, Eastern Bloc socialism. And so, you know, a lot of, like, left communist and syndicalist and anarchist stuff and situationist stuff, that stuff really appealed to, like, a lot of young people. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons the IWW was able to have a comeback at that point. Mm-hmm. Because they did have this kind of radical legacy.
2: Right. They, you know, they,
1: come they a new one.
2: And they they certainly uh, – a, a big component of their ideology from the first was, like, self-government, was extreme democracy. That was a tension running through the organization – um, especially from the anarchist influence. And so, yeah, I could see the appeal, or there certainly was an appeal in the 60s for a lot of sort of the counterculture um, and in, it was a part of the new left that developed. I mean, I guess you have like the Fugs or whatever who referenced the IWW and like, uh, I think there's, you can find that, I mentioned Frank Cedarval before who was involved in organizing the Cleveland Metalworkers um, or the Ohio, Metalworkers in Ohio, including Cleveland. And, he's talking to, he's addressing, like, a crowd in the 1960s, and he's like, yeah, this is who the Wobblies were and all this stuff, and you can kind of hear, like, the younger people in the crowd and stuff who are maybe interested in this.
1: Yeah, uh, you, you have Allen
0: Ginsberg saying in, in his poetry that he's sentimental about the Wobblies at that right. time. I mean, it, it yeah,
1: has... The, a huge Hunter S. Thompson idea. says that the, the IWW was the last humane idea in American politics. Actually, right. I remember that quote. So you definitely had that kind of counterculture, like, Legacy because the whole like counterculture thing is all about like kind of like looking at like the authentic, true, like so you know, people in America, you know,
2: right? And then it goes deeper, like the IWW members of it were involved, like in Chicago, there's this place called the College of the Complexes and the Bug house Square, which was like this kind of like before this is in the 20s, it was like a count, it was like a uh, like a libertarian in the anarchist sense, like social club where people would come on and like do plays or debate politics or read poetry. It was supposed to be this like, you know, club, right. This mutual aid kind of place or whatever, not really mutual aid. Cause those are more restricted to like ethnic enclaves. This is more like, I guess kind of, yeah. What was the words I've heard someone like lumpen bourgeois or whatever, but like it had, yeah. but,
0: been- but it sounds very bohemian. Maybe that's bohemian,
2: what Yeah. For. That's what I'm looking for. I think um but yeah and it has a direct connection there's a guy slim brundage who was like he called himself the janitor of the college of the complexes but he was like the custodian would be a better term right um who kind of managed it and oversaw it and there's a collection kind of of his writings and reflections that the charles h care publishing like put out and he was a wobbly he was like a house painter you know like that's, that's what he did for a living but he was also into like this free expression this free speech stuff and that stuff like has as i understand it like pretty close connection or or not indirect connection to the beatniks and to that sort of that strand of countercultural uh production in the united states it's also tied to folk music i mean again you i like to say it this simplistically but you don't get bob dylan without woody guthrie and you don't get woody guthrie without joe hill and joe hill was a swedish immigrant who came to the united states started working on the docks in california joined the iww and started writing like protest songs for the iww he would take popular songs of the day and then put them put like radical class struggle socialist lyrics to them talking about how the salvation army was a bunch of crooks and liars and how you should overthrow capitalism you know
0: um do you think that like the modern the modern day uh joe hill would have like a SoundCloud? <laughs> he'd be like for a sure. SoundCloud rapper. he would be a struggle rapper yeah
1: yeah, he he'd,
0: he'd uh, be flipping uh, despacito. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, yeah so
2: that's a that's a, that's another strand of you know like uh oh an influence the IWW has had on in American history. Um, yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So it looks like you know in this period they started to basically just kind of affiliate with like co-ops, or, like a lot of different the like, radical printing presses basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this the following kind of period of like the seventies up to the nineties seems like it's kind of like the lost period of like IWW history, probably because it's overall much less interesting than everything that came before it. Um, but how much, how much do you know about this period and like what kind of, like what was the IWW's approach to organizing after their kind of previous, like, you know, big industry heroic age came to an end? Like what were they doing? Um, after after the new left collapsed and they started trying to attempt to organize workplaces again
2: yeah my understanding is various uh elections for small workplaces uh kind of uh, messing around with the idea of cooperatives there so there was an element in the IWW and in syndicalist thought that workers are going to take over workplaces and this meshes really well this is in socialist thought in general too with the idea of cooperatives and so there's an element of we can form cooperatives and have them under the banner of the IWW. Um, we can organize, we can try to organize places. And I, I don't know too much in detail. I think there's a book you can find on Libcom. I haven't read it, but it talks about that specific period um, that some people have put together. I don't know if it was in that period, but I maybe it was in the 90s that I think some IWWs tried to organize. It must have been in the 90s because they organized, uh, like, canvassers for Ralph Nader, I think, or for, like, the Green Party or something like that. I know recently some members of the Green Party have also uh, joined, but, yeah. So they would kind of do stuff like that. And honestly, that's kind of been our trajectory up into this point. I mean, we can talk about that. I guess you'll get to it, but there's maybe some more high-profile stuff now or in the past 15 years, but.
0: Well, yeah, it's like they tried to organize KFC in, like, the 70s and ShopRite. In the 90s, they tried to organize Borders. Yeah. Uh, which was, the- you know, for those who don't remember, it was a bookstore uh, that and- has since collapsed. Basically. Right,
2: maybe that's a secret. Maybe you know, the IWW just caused them to collapse, but no one ever talks about them. No, I'm kidding.
0: Oh, wait, <laughs> the IWW put out the Kindle in the Nook? No way. <laughs>
2: exactly.
0: Okay, Um. yeah, so, yeah, that that's, like, a theory, right, like a... Because the workers, uh, and the IWW destroyed the big box bookstores through their agitation. They had yeah. to automate it with Amazon. Yeah, that's how, the, that's how the proletariat drives the progressive tendencies of capitalism. Yeah. Is
1: there any?
0: Is there anything else? Is there anything else that the general panel wants to talk about or has to say? Uh, just about. This? I, I had a I had a history question. I I could have missed something though. So, just let me know if you kind of tracked this. But um, we we skipped a bit of the the sort of interwar period um and i'm i'm curious what really because for a lot of the american labor movement it's it's uh more after world war ii that like the final death knell sort of comes uh, what what led to that initial decline after the first world war do you have a I, sense?
2: I think it was mostly as i understand the historical consensus it's the split in the socialist movement in general Because the IWW was deeply embedded in the Socialist movement in general. Yeah. Um, So the Communists kind of start to think about... Okay, so the IWW, I believe, uh, decides not to affiliate with the Comintern. And so all of the Communists leave. Um, The Socialists had already said they don't want to be part of the IWW. So now you're left with this organization that's... Right, it's kind of just left with whatever unions it had prior are involved. Um, but most of the big timers or whatever are going and pursuing other things. Um, I think that was a big part of it, which is kind of general splits in the socialist movement. I don't know if Donald.
0: Well, was it was like a brain drain kind of thing.
2: I think so, and uh, it really became. I think you know, like Bill Haywood went to Soviet, the Soviet Union, ended up dying there in like 1924. Um, the doc, the longshoremen in Philly, the. International Longshoremen's Association, which is the AFL, like, mobbed up shitty, like, Longshoremen's Union, to this day, worked with the government to bust them up and use, like, racism to divide them. Um, So that union kind of petered out. The... I don't know of any other major ones. I think there were still some timber workers organized back then, but I think that got busted in Seattle with the Seattle general strike. So, yeah, like, it kind of... I think it fell apart and a lot of, like, yeah, like, a brain drain, a lot of the leadership left, and... I don't really
1: know. It kind of dwindled. You had, um, I mean, you had, you know, the uh, the Red International of Trade Unions, but there was kind of, their strategy was, as you said, to kind of work within the business unions. And so, you know, all the communists basically left the IWW and there was, it's, it's I don't know. In, in one sense, though, it seems like the CIO kind of, um was almost like um not a superior form of unionism for class struggle but it kind of took a lot of the ideas of the IWW oh, that yeah. were useful but um kind of made it into a unionism more amenable to capitalism and because of that they were able to also kind of replace the IWW in a way
2: yeah so the yeah so people pursue still the concept of industrial unionism but it gets translated into the CIO eventually i think it's John Lewis who Right, who uh, charters the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or Committee of Industrial Organizations, whatever it was called first, and they start trying to organize industrial unions in different industries throughout the United States. They start working with like communist organizers, many of whom are ex-wobblies, like rank and file organizers and stuff. So you get like Stan Weir and Marty Glaverman are two like Marxist labor, um, like organizers and stuff from the '40s and '50s who talk about meeting people. Um, Stan Weir was, I think he was a sailor for some of his time. So in the West Coast, and he talks about meeting wobblies who like struck in the 1930s with, and helped form the International and Longshore Workers Union, Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union on the West Coast. Um, and how they like basically taught him the methodologies of direct action committee building on the job and stuff like that. So you could read some of that. So there's like this sort of uh, history of the masses or whatever that filters through to like the CIO and everything like that. But the formal institution kind of begins to wither.
1: Yeah. It seems like a lot of the spirit of the IWW still kind of remained as well. It just yeah. didn't translate into the forms that would later develop, I guess. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the CP, a lot of their most radical members were former Wobblies, but someone like uh, William Z. Foster kind of, well, he actually broke with the IWW before he came to the CP, but.
2: Yeah. And well, and another thing, another factor is
1: Stalinist hack.
2: Yeah. Another factor is economic decline. So, you know, the IWW grew in the mid to late teens before it was like uh, rated because there was huge demand for labor. But after the war, there was a huge, the opposite, right? It was slack. So it becomes much harder to bargain as a union when there is a huge supply of labor and a low demand. Um, so that combined with like, so many other factors, uh, I think, helped.
1: Yeah, and I also think um, another problem might have been the reliance on transitory workers rather than building locals mm-hmm. that would um, stand for a long, permanent period of time. It was kind of because they a lot of the clientele, I guess, of the IWW, because they were you know, always on the move. And, you know, a lot of them were hobos, for example, like you touched on earlier. Mm -hmm. Because they weren't rooted almost in kind of like permanent working class communities. Like, it might they kind of lost a lot of their um, milieu almost with the restructuring of capitalism, perhaps.
0: And you can't see their kind of like the the historical basis for the kind of like each one teach one attitude in terms of like labor organizing that persists in the IWW today. Although, albeit in in a different form.
2: Yeah, it definitely is derives, like, the delegate form we have now is based on those migratory workers. The idea was that the delegate carries everything he needs to have a local office in his, you know, his his bindle. yeah, and so, like, he can just walk around and go to where they're, oh, they're yeah. working in the harvest fields this week, they're working in the mines next month, like, just pass out these little cards and stickers and little pamphlets and you know do so it's like i call it diy because it fits in yeah
1: 19th. it's diy unionism it's it's like the you know anarcho punk equivalent of unionism
2: right
1: <laughs> like and, you got your well, diy yeah. abortion and you got your diy unionism <laughs>
2: well the thing is it had a historical basis like Jay said yeah right?
1: exactly it makes sense in that class composition right. in that period of american history right and also with the kind of the international syndicalist movement that was fueled by immigration well, what can, so what can it makes sense in that period? But for the IWW to still try to organize in the same way as it did back then would just be a regressive because it's not, you know, we're not developing new strategy and new tactics to meet the changing composition of capital.
0: Well, the problem with it is it's like there's that saying they, they keep going, go, well, if you have the power to get a contract, then you don't need one. Well, it's like, yeah, you, you also don't need a union either. Like if you just have a strong, like, shop floor committee, you can just do that. Exactly. But, you know, and In fact, in fact, why don't we just make the IWW and do a series of pamphlets explaining to people how to organize a union, and they can just print those pamphlets, and we'll put up a website. We won't have any organization, and we'll just have shop floor committees that you know have. We'll sell buttons to people, and that that'll be that'll be it. We'll eliminate all administration. We'll eliminate all branches, and it, everyone will just go and do it. Like that's like, that that Me would probably... I will
1: say it's an improvement over councilism because at least like they believe in actually trying to build shop committees and stuff.
2: Well, you can just leave your pamphlets, you know, in the the drawer of every hotel you stop in, right?
1: (laughs) We can leave pamphlets telling workers how to um, seize and self-manage the means of production. Once we print enough, the revolution will happen because the workers will realize that they can seize and manage the means of production.
0: That's it for this week. Part two of this will go up in a couple of weeks. On that episode, we will cover the organization of the present-day IWW, and offer some thoughts on where it is headed and where it ought to go. Next week, we will be airing a news roundup episode. We're going to talk about the two conventions that took place recently, DSA convention and the Marxist Center convention. Uh, We will also be discussing the rapidly deteriorating situation in Venezuela, North Korean nuclear ambitions, and more. If you need to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you would like to support the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes and or give us a like on Facebook. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.